So, welcome to Bible Bitches, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist comedic perspective. And I am here with a one Sarah Hoff, a schnazzy agnostic based in California. <laughs> schnazzy. I am schnazzy. And this is Laura Barclay. She's a Baptist minister out of Louisville, Kentucky. Today, I'm actually yes. really excited about this one. We're talking about Julian of Norwich. Um, yeah, she's like the, the kind of person everybody knows, knows kind of who she is in the periphery, but nobody actually knows what the fuck her deal is. Um, so she is a 14th century mystic who is the first woman in history to publish a book in the English language, which is in and of itself a pretty damn good feat for the 14th century. Um, it's called Revelations of Divine Love. We're going to talk about her crazy life. She had some near-death experiences, her weird, bloody, sexy visions of Jesus, probably while she was on her period. And I'm going to argue that, like, of course she has historical importance, but I'm kind of, like, conflicted over her as a feminist figure because like on the one hand like her theology I think has a lot of problematic elements to it and she's in a subservient position as she's like claimed this monastic life but on the other hand she like uses her like she uses her subservience as kind of leverage to bypass this kind of I don't know traditional female role and like receive God's word directly and like in so doing she be she like becomes like somebody you have to take seriously theologically. Yeah and I am going to agree with Sarah that her work is historically important and fascinating and that taken at face value that some aspects are problematic but still has clear feminist like really strong feminist usage um, and value um, and I'm even going to go further to state that her book has some very sophisticated proto-feminist theology that is ultimately helpful because it elevates the importance of Mary to near godlike status and enhances the feminine qualities of Christ. Um, in addition, there is some erotic imagery in her encounter with God that she describes that can reframe our discussions on sex and shame in a very positive way. Does it? Uh, me just being an agnostic. Anyways, basically, basically the deal is, is that like, we, we can both agree that she has like feminist elements that we can tease out of her. Um, but where we disagree will be on the theology because in her actions, I think we can both agree that her actions are very feminist. Um, they're intentionally, well, we don't know intentionally, but they're subversive and in like kind of a sneaky way, but in a fun way. Um, <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm not... I'm not fully convinced by her theology. I'm, I'm honestly, though, I'm not convinced by a lot of, like, past theologies. I only read what is current. And so basically just read it. I can tell you a lot about memes. <laughs> Sarah's theology is based entirely around memes. It is. It. it is. It's a really complex, deep theology. That's just, it's just constantly be me being like, now I can't fucking think of a meme. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, so I would say that I really do value her work on Mary, uh, Mother of Jesus, 
as bringing dialogue around Mary into the conversation a little bit more than it had been previously. I also would say that I think she's pretty savvy in the way that she brings Mary in. I think that her historical importance is great. I also think that she's pretty politically savvy in her theology and what she's trying to do. Do you think that she's doing that intentionally? I don't know. But I think yeah. she should give a little more context and then, and then let them Yeah, know. for sure. So Julianne of Norwich was a woman who lived sometime in the mid-14th to early 15th century. Um, obviously, there aren't just a ton of books from or like history books that are still around from this from that time, but we can piece together her age from her writings as she notes being about a 30.5 years old. 30.5. She was 30 and one half <laughs> in 1373. I'm going, like, who does that? Who is, who like really needs that 0.5 on the end of their age at this, at this age? I mean, I mean, I get that you're saying that, but I know you also live in LA. And if I understand LA math, I think the way they do it there is you add two years until you become 21. Then you start subtracting five to 10 years thereafter. Yeah, no, it's true. Like you just, you, you just round down to like, to like the first decimal. (laughs) So, you know, half birthdays aren't really a thing after you are a teenager, but she likes them. So, you know what? Good on you, Julian. You don't have a lot going on. So sounds good. Um, (laughs) She's an anchorite. And what the hell is that? Uh, So I found a thesis of a one Danielle C. McRae on the interwebs who was getting their doctor of theology degree from Duke Divinity School in 2014. So shout out to you and putting your work online. Thanks. And McRae writes in the censored pulpit, Julian of Norwich as preacher, that an anchorite or an anchoress in the feminine is a religious solitary who withdraws from the world as a form of spiritual expression. Anchorites vowed to remain in a specified place called an anchor hold for a set period of time, usually for the duration of his or her life. This withdrawal was a faith performance that traversed the boundary between public and private and made the anchorite's inner life a public profession of Christ's death and resurrection. Because anchorites were solitary figures and enjoyed considerable freedom, there was considerable variety in the shape of their lives, a.k.a. they did not have a lot going on, and so they celebrated half birthdays. (laughs) Are you sure that they just weren't like the people on ships who were in charge of the anchor? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if I just got this completely wrong and it was like, no, no, <laughs> Julian of Norwich is a pirate. <laughs> they're, like, they're just like they are like the bearers of all nautical law. <laughs> it's their deal. They're like we hold the anchor. We know the law. <laughs> I feel like we need to completely recast her now as uh, this sort of nautical heroine. Yeah. Who slayed nautical monsters like dragons. Sea dragons. <laughs> her <laughs> leviathan. Yes, her leviathan with the anchor that she singularly held in her hand. <laughs> okay. <Science. laughs> um, so, sh- shockingly, 
Anchorites lived in Anchor Holds. What? An Anchor Holds, an Anchorite. Um, <laughs> sorry. So, so basically these Anchor Holds are just like a convent or a retreat center, except that you can't really leave because you're you've chosen the monastic lifestyle they're they're generally outside of town they're intentionally reclusive they're pretty austere it's not like there's a ton of you know amenities that go along with this um but they began to appear in cities actually this this is it's like a weird thing the pattern coincides with an increase in female recluses and presents a more nuanced understanding of withdrawal into the wilderness a literal desert like it's no longer a mandate for these people who are choosing a secluded lifestyle because she can challenge evil and its many faces, which is all of the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, envy, all of them. Um, she can, she can face those in her own heart. Like it does that you don't need to be physically in a secluded space to be able to retreat within yourself essentially. So in this sense, the anchoress is engaged in a very public denunciation of the powers of evil in the world and a public profession of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So basically what you're saying is an anchoress is a woman who wants some damned peace and quiet without having a dude telling her to have babies. I can, you know what? I think I can get down to that. Like it sucks. It sucks that she had to wall herself up to do it, <laughs> but that is quite a metaphor for what it takes to get a room of one's own in the 14th. <laughs> so I live alone. Am I living in an anchor hold? My own personal anchor hold? Ooh, Sarah's asking the deep questions. Mm -hmm. Except for I doubt it because I'm 100% not living a monastic lifestyle. <laughs> How many of you out there feeling like are feeling like you're in your own anchor hold? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I forgot that we were on focus on the family just now. Right. <laughs> I was actually trying to turn that into a little more, uh, you know, like one of those, uh, those like night call-in shows. Yeah. I got like, you. Uh, anybody feel like they're in their own private anchor hold? Give us a call at 800-555-5555. Somebody's been watching Frasier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, she's probably praying. Maybe she's napping. I'd be napping. She's like, <laughs> like she's calling in some delivery. I bet they had really good delivery services back in the 14th century. <laughs> like, give me a, a whole goat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you can rent this goat for one hour while you milk it so that you then have, I don't know, cheese and butter. Yes. And you got to churn it yourself. Yeah. Yep. God, that was the worst delivery. Um, okay. So she's an anchorite at this church in the town of Norwich, which at the time was the second largest city in England. Okay. So I found in the showings of Julian of Norwich by Georgia Ronan Crumpton, that this would have been a city of about 6,000 and a religious center, a cathedral city, but it was racked by the plague at least three times. And Julian's described, she's described as being an anchorite at St. Julian Church of Norwich. So perhaps she actually took on this name of the church while living there and just kind of signed her work like that. Um, so we're not really sure that that's her real name. Um, but it's at least her pen name. Uh, anyway, so Julian falls very ill. 
um, as she describes in her book, Revelations of Divine Love, at age 30 and a half. Yeah, so like, maybe it was the plague. We're not sure. We're not sure what she had, but it was probably the plague. And she, she's like on her way to death. And of course, she starts sort of like hallucinating. And in Intimate with God, Julian Norwich by Carol F. Heffernan, published in Magistra in 2013, Heffernan states that Julian had a series of 16 visions on May 13th, 1373, where she, when she was 30, and so sick that she was believed to be dying and receiving the last rites. The visions begin when a priest holds a crucifix before Julian's face, and she suddenly sees blood trickle down Jesus's face, Christ's face, under the crown of thorns. A revelation which consists of her meditations upon these visions exists in two versions. There's a short version called A Vision Dating from the 1380s, and then a longer version, A Revelation, in the 1390s, and was not like put together in full until 1413. So, so like, which is all to say that there's been a significant amount of time, right? Like, mm-hmm. she had these visions in 1373. They get sort of compiled in a short frame in the 80s, 1380s. And then again, the more expanded version in the 90s. And then not, and then it's like another 30 years until it actually gets like copied in full. Um, so while Julian is meditating upon what she saw and added in the longer version she like adds commentary about what her visions revealed and all throughout this she lived a life of prayer and solitary contemplation that's right sarah have you ever been so sick that you hallucinated i don't i don't necessarily recommend it i had the flu really bad when we were in divinity school i don't know if you remember this is when we got back from new york uh on the school trip and my fever was like 104 and i had to go to the er and so true story i had this vision that i was riding a unicorn (laughs) yeah and i saw a field of snails dancing in a garage like in the garage in my that i of the house that i grew up in and they were dancing and they had peace signs on their back and they were all like they were it was like their little antennae was all going like to the left and the right at the same time (laughs) and i was dancing with them and they were like singing some sort of weird song, like nee, 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 nee. and I was going back and forth with them. And then I woke up. It was like the, it was like lit as hell. But like I woke up and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm dying!" And like I rolled out of bed and I crawled to our friend because I was living with our friend Erin at the time. And I like literally crawled to her door and I like knocked on it. But I waited because I thought it was impolite to wake her up, <laughs> like at four in the morning. So I. <laughs> I kind of collapsed outside of, and I fell asleep again. I passed out again outside of her uh, door. And then I <laughs> knocked on it again at like six, six or seven. Cause the sun was up. I was like, I could be dying. I don't want to alarm you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, as it turns out, I was very low on fluids. <laughs> very low. And uh, it took a solid week to get over that flu that year. <laughs> Dude, dude. Should I write a book on that? You should. should. (laughs) Or maybe just illustrate a cartoon. I'd really like to see these snails. They're pretty great. Yeah. (laughs) I've I've never had like a hallucination like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm trying to. You're trying to. If you you ever had a hallucination, what would you want to see? 
Like, I imagine you have to be in the mood for it. Like, uh, when I go on vacation with, like, friends or, like, international or whatever, mm-hmm. like, you just have to, like, be like, I don't give a fuck what happens. Like, yeah. you just have to, like, that's how I imagine, or, like, that's what I think a good way to do a thing, any yeah. kind of way, any kind of thing where you're, like, going to be out of control and you have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Be yeah. like, I mean, if this is how I die, it's a pretty good story. You're ready to bear hug the universe. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I know about you, Sarah. You're ready to bear hug it. <laughs> I, I, I am. I'm ready to bear hug any experience, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's also on your Tinder profile. Um, <laughs> I have the fright, most frightening Tinder profile <laughs> of all time. <laughs> I really like for the Bible bitches. Uh, Twitter crowd to crowdsource your Tinder profile. <laughs> that is not a thing we're actually going to do, but that would be really funny. <laughs> well, basically, like, that's not how it works. Like, you can't, like, look up a person. No, it just, like, if you, it, like, what things would you want to see on Sarah's Tinder profile? <gasps> yes. No. Yeah. Yes. Legitimately, yeah. let's do that. So much fun. I just want to see what they say. Yeah. I'll put it on there. I don't give a shit. Yes. Honestly. Okay. So back to Julian, who does not have a Tinder profile, um, because she's an anchorite and living, living in a <laughs> cell. Living, living before the technological age. Yeah, in the 14th. Yeah, it's less that she was connected to a church and more that there wasn't technology. Um, <laughs> living in this cell connected to a church, and she's got the, with the plague, maybe, I don't know, she's super sick, and she is hallucinating. And in the work that she's writing as her reflection on this, she says she's unlettered. So, like, um, her high school boyfriend didn't give him give her his letter jacket? That's never, I know. She's still <laughs> waiting for that letter jacket. Uh, but this book, even though she says she's unlettered, this book is a big deal. Uh, Revelations of Divine Love is the first work by a known woman in the English language. Uh, people argue over whether she dictated it or she didn't. Or, or like didn't know you know how to write like what's going on here um but in her master's thesis julian of norwich voicing the vernacular by therese uh, novotny novotny notes that latin was left exclusively to the clerics and monks in the late middle ages um as part of their clerical authority which led to the increased popularity of lay and secular texts being written in the vernacular english so julian of norwich had multiple forms of language and rhetoric available to her in oral formats and in visual arts, especially that of the Passion and the Last Judgment, Julian gathered forms of language around her. Even if she had not heard the sermon or seen exact pieces of art, she would have been familiar with the common themes, pictures, and narratives of Christianity in and around Norwich. Yeah, so I mean, like, she was definitely, like, definitely exposed to all of this, and people speculate that she learned how to read from nuns or monks. I mean, like, what the fuck else is she going to do in a monastic lifestyle, right? Or that she knew Latin and didn't write it in order to not piss off the fragile male ego of that time. The fragile male ego of every time. Um, <laughs> like, like, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. But as we go on, we'll see that her meditations on her own visions show a great deal of sophisticated theology. So she was obviously like absorbing it or retaining it somehow. She's being exposed to it for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. So in her book, she describes seeing Jesus with a brown face. Thank you for being historically accurate, Julian, as Jesus was brown as a Middle Eastern Jew. So progressive. Um, right? She's so progressive. With blue and white robes. She also sees that he's drenched in blood in her vision. There is a lot of blood in this revelation, but she's also sick as hell and has probably seen loads of plague victims in her <laughs> life. Oh, yeah. Y'all, the 14th century, not pretty. She's... Blood is just part of the game. Uh, but all this was showed by three parts. Uh, Julian, Jesus, and Mary and Julian of Norwich's A Book of Showings to the Anchorist Julian of Norwich by Holly Ellen Wilson, which is Wilson's master thesis for the University of Georgia from 2001. We found that she notes scholar Elizabeth Robertson claims that Julian's work focused on images of blood, such as the bleeding head of Christ that Julian sees in the first revelation. Moreover, Robertson likens such images to menstrual blood and claims that Julian uses such images to purge her body and make it acceptable for the coming union with Christ. Ugh. So Wilson continues. She agrees with another scholar, David Ayres, who says, instead of emphasizing the body, Julian's main goal in positing Christ as a maternal figure is to explore on an intellectual basis how knowledge of God and self-knowledge are united in the divine indwelling of man in God and God in man. So do you want to expound on that? What that means? Like how, how is Christ like, like what is this knowledge of God and self-knowledge as united and in divine indwelling of God of man? In God? Yeah. 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 So that like, if Christ is this kind of more of a maternal figure that he's totally Christ is totally comfortable with being a part of humanity and humanity being a part of, of Jesus. Right. Right. So like, but, and I think this all relates to that. Like Julian's not overly concerned with her menstruation in the 14th century. Like shit, there's much bigger problems around than menstruation. Right. Like trying not to die from every disease and ladies having to cloister themselves to get some damn time to think. So yeah, I don't really see that being a problem. But what's really juicy is that Julian yearns, as Carol Heffernan states, for Jesus in the plain, powerful language of human desire. Quote, I saw him and sought him, and I had him and wanted him. End quote. Yeah, so that is something like very provocative, right? It's a crazy thing for a woman of that time to say, because we're moving from looking at her as menstruation obsessed to having some like perhaps erotic feelings for Jesus and like it's crazy so like a lot has been talked about about this kind of desire for Jesus as merging both the erotic and the friendly love and I mean like you know no judgment I feel like as just like any kind of any kind of adult or post-pubescent person especially one who is intentionally like um refusing their sexuality like that sexuality has to come out right a hundred percent and like if you know regardless of if we believe that jesus did express his sexuality or not was married or not that you know if he did not have sexual dysfunction then he at some point probably had erotic thoughts right or Yeah, I mean, he went through puberty. So I I think that we have to look at humanity as being, you know, 
we're fully embodied people. We're spiritual. We're, you know, we, we have a whole like mental, physical and spiritual sides of ourselves. And so I don't really see this as being problematic at all. I think, I think in fact, it kind of shows she's a little bit more mature than being obsessed with her period. She's kind of realized that, okay, so God was drenched in blood. She's been dying potentially from the plague and has also had experiences with blood every month if she's a woman. So, you know, she was born a woman. Um, That this is a, I don't know. I just don't see this as being, yeah. I mean, I know we're very puritanical in America, but. What I am, like, I'm way less concerned about this than I am about the the bloody visions. The visions, like the, the way that she talks about marrying the pain with the purity or the pain with like love right yeah i agree i think they're uh, like part of what i think about her visions is that you know i'm trying to put her in her context i cannot imagine what it was like to live in the 14th century i just like cannot um so i know we're gonna get to the blood like a little bit more on the bloody part but I think with this, if she's cloistered away and human, she's going to have some feelings and I'm not about to judge them if she's getting some sense of, you know, intimate joy out of her vision of Jesus. Like, I feel like, you know, as embodied people, that's, we're going to have some feelings and. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Julian has visions, not just of Jesus, but also of Mary, which is very interesting. Wilson talks about how she connects Jesus's birth from Mary to all of humanity. Wilson says, because God as Christ is enclosed in Mary's womb, mankind is also enclosed in Mary's womb. Therefore, Mary is the mother not only of Jesus, but also all of humanity. Which is, I mean, like that's a fascinating thing to say. And that's very subversive in that moment, right? To like, as we were talking about earlier, to elevate Jesus to the, or sorry, to elevate Mary to this point of like almost whatever. Yeah, I think that's fascinating um, that she's kind of doing this thing where it's like, okay, we're all connected to Mary's womb. And while, you know, in the 21st century, you know, our concepts on gender have evolved and, you know, we don't necessarily uh, equate womanhood with having or not having a uterus, right? But at that point, it was was very gendered uh, and based upon the genitals you were born with. And I think this is a really interesting point that she's saying, okay, well, we also all have to come out of Mary's womb. If we're going to say that, if, if we're going to say that Jesus came from Mary, then what does that mean? That that holds a whole lot more of importance than people say. I think up until that point, it had all been like, okay, but God put Jesus in Mary's womb. But she's like, okay, so what? But Jesus was still in Mary's womb. So what are we going to do with that? Which I think is very interesting. You know what, actually, so I think like that's kind of, I mean, like, yeah, I see your point. I still kind of wonder about that theologically because like I see how she's recontextualizing it as being like sort of an empowered thing, although obviously those aren't the words that she would use, but, and like she's done a lot of good stuff, but at the same time, it seems tricky to me because I can't quite get past this idea of, of God and and Jesus sort of like using women. Um, And like in this particular context, very arguably Mary is just kind of like a pawn. 
um, and is just kind of this vessel that Jesus then is like born and born to. And, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. She has, she's the special one. She's the chosen one. But at the same time, like her voice is just as overlooked as many, many other women in the Bible. And so like, I don't know. I mean, I know it's baby steps. I know it's baby steps. She's, she's taking a baby step. Yeah, I think it's a very important baby step that I'm not sure anyone had done in 1,400 years. So right, I, exactly. I just want to give her huge props for this. Like, regardless of what we think about Mary's place in, well, I guess let me let me back up. Regardless of what we think about Mary's consent, maybe to this whole thing. Yeah. To the whole yeah. Um, that Julian putting this to paper and also being the first woman to publish in the English language. And this being her point is huge. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred yeah. Like she as like in her actions, I totally agree. Like it's, and, and like, and I know like she's sort of bound to the rhetoric and theology and everything of her time. I'm just like trying to see what it means for us in our day. Huh? Yeah, 21st century. Yeah, in 21st century. And I I would like, I would say that her actions and her choice of subversion is, choice of subversion in her actions is more like empowering or more useful than her theology. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, that we're not, we're not done yet. No, because we want to read some from her own words because uh, this is coming out in March, which will be Women's History Month. So I want to put this in her own words and I'm going to butcher it. Okay. I'm going to butcher it real bad um, because I'm reading it in Middle English. Uh, <laughs> there are so a lot of whys in Middle English. A lot of whys. The spelling is very different. And just looking at it, it looks like it's going to, I think I have not actually tried to read this out loud before, but it's going to sound a lot like the Swedish chef Muppet. <laughs> For in that same time, the God knit time to our body in the maiden's womb. He took our sensual soul, in which taking he versus all be closed in him. He owned it or substance, in which un he perfect man for Christ, having knit time, all men should be saved in perfect man. And that was a reading from the Swedish chef reflects on Christ. <laughs> um. Can I translate? <laughs> or in that same time that God knit him to our bodies in the maiden's womb, he took our sensual souls, in which taking he versus all vs he. I think it's okay. So I think is thing where the v's or the u's. Oh, maybe there's a he, he something and As us all yeah something some he something all having the clothes betrothed i think or like well i was gonna say beclosed like it he like took us all maybe it's a word like beclosed like he closed us all up in him yeah okay yeah so he like in taking he like enclosed maybe enclosed in him he owned it to our substance in which doing i think in yeah. which he really was long tea but we're just gonna keep going <laughs> yeah in which like it looks like oolong but without the l in which he was 
perfect man or yeah i think perfect man for christ having knit in him all men shall be saved so like in which he was the perfect man for christ having um i'm gonna go with having being knit in him in the womb kind of thing um all men shall be saved in this perfect man yeah i i think what she's doing here is saying that like just like jesus had to be in a womb like god like jesus taking all of us into into himself so like jesus is using mary's example in terms of relating to us right so she's using the womb as like this kind of metaphor for uh yeah. salvation maybe yeah like I don't know. like christ yeah. is in our womb we are in christ's womb kind of deal yeah, so she continues that in her reexamination of the 14th revelation, Julian combines both sight into a single vision of human being enclosed in Mary and Jesus. And so Julian says, thus our lady is our motor mother in whom we be all beclosed. I think we've agreed enclosed, beclosed. Beclosed, I think all beclosed. like which is like enclosed nowadays. Enclosed, yeah. yeah. And of her born in Christ, for that she is the motor, mother, of our Savior, is mother of all that been saved in our Savior. And our Savior is our very motor, in whom we be endlessly born and never shall be out of him. So there are a lot of articles that apparently get interjected later, right? (laughs) So, Our Lady is our mother in whom we shall be enclosed, and of her is born, and of her born in Christ, for she is that mother of our Savior, who is mother of all that has been saved in our Savior, and our Savior is our very mother in whom we be endlessly born and never shall come out of him. So it's like a constant circle. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's like a snake eating its own tail. Um, yeah. I'll also say that, like, I feel like her, like, I know that this is not as nuanced as it should be, but I do feel like her view of gender in the 14th century is, is like, in some ways more progressive than, uh, <laughs> than most uh, straight white dudes in the 21st century. Because she's just so, like, very fluid about, like, okay, so just like Christ came out of Mary then we're all enclosed in Christ and it's this just kind of like thing that's going to keep happening and we're all born out of Christ. And so what if Christ has a womb? Big deal. Like who cares? Like relating it all as this kind of metaphor of Jesus as mother. And I think that's really interesting. And in doing so, she's able to elevate Mary to this higher status. But I also feel like it's a very Muppet theology presented by the Swedish chef. And we're all going to go for meatballs at Ikea later if you want to join us. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think Ikea is on point because we just had to, like, reassemble. We were given the tools and we had to reassemble, like, all that she said right there. Exactly. <laughs> DIY. <laughs> Essentially. So, like, she, I mean, like, she is pretty badass. She is very progressive for the 1300s, let's be honest. I mean, like, 
Well, how about you say what you think first? Because I have a whole, I have a whole soapbox. Okay. Um, okay. So I think she's basically elevating Mary's importance higher than Mary's ever been elevated before and making her theologically necessary to us, um, to Christians. When I say us, I mean Christian. Um, Not me. Sorry. <laughs> Whoever wants to be relevant to them, I guess I should say. I wasn't trying to be like, she will be relevant to you, Sarah, damn it. <laughs> I refuse her relevance. Yeah. Um, but she's elevating Mary's importance to that of Jesus, showing that she is theologically necessary and giving female imagery to God that maybe wasn't there before. Definitely, I think, giving female imagery to Jesus that wasn't there before. So I really appreciate that because I feel like that was the basis for a lot of stuff that came after in terms of how we view Mary, in terms of any sort of language about Jesus. And I just don't think that was there before. And that's real. I think it, I think in terms of how little there was before her about that, I almost want to think that it takes a near death experience in the 1300s of being like, well, fuck it. I might as well. Like, and I don't know if this was her being politically savvy and saying, I'm going to do this. I get the sense that if there was some politically savviness to her, that it really had a lot to do with her actual experience with Jesus. So, yeah, I don't think that she was being like, it wasn't, she wasn't being political. She wasn't like making moves. You know what I mean? I think if she was being careful at all in how she worded anything, I don't think she was lying. I think I definitely feel like this was an, Oh my God, I almost died. And I better write this down because I feel like I had a really important experience that taught me something and other people can benefit from this. Can I address something real quick? Please do. Here's the thing about the mystics. Lay it on us here. They're like the hippie community. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? They're They're like the ones who believe in crystals and shit. I just now picture Julianne in her cell with like a Himalayan salt crystal. Like, <laughs> totally. She's like, you guys, this is totally, it's totally going to keep me safe from 100%. the place. <laughs> and so like, not going to lie, I definitely read some articles that I was just like, oh God, no. <laughs> like, I'm stopping. Because she was such a hippie because they were like, she's. Yeah, they were like uh, mystic articles from mystic papers or whatever. And I was just like. I shouldn't have printed this off. But, like, also, (laughs) that's really just to say that, like, there is a kind of, I mean, apart from just her being a woman, let's be honest, but, like, apart from that, mystics don't get a lot of play in Protestant Christianity. Mm, Accurate. And I think one of the reasons why is because it has that kind of, like, very very supernatural, very spiritual element that many of the Protestants that I grew up with, the Protestantism I know is like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe we, maybe we like something more tangible than that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's really neither here nor there. I think it's a good point as to why, uh, if, if you have a remotely similar background to Sarah or I, who were both raised real conservative and then went, bah! And <laughs> currently, um, 
I think it could explain why you might have never heard of her or only heard of her in passing because it's not, I never heard of her growing up. I did not hear of her until divinity school. Whenever our, what Baptist, he was a Baptist uh, professor who loved Catholic history, taught us about her. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's interesting. Yeah. So sorry, that was a tangent back on topic, back to the feminist element. I'm a little bit worried about her theology because it is super maternal. It is, it is accepting of a lot of pain. It's still, it's still like very maternal in how she like views God and, and like the imagery involved there. Right. Cause it's like all about the womb and that kind of stuff. And um, I'm a little bit hesitant to advocate for that in this kind of like current context, because I think we've already been inundated, oversaturated with bodily imagery that is helpful, that is probably more helpful than this, in my opinion. Anyways, what I do find really compelling about her is that she kind of uh, toes this line insofar as that she lives, I mean, like she voluntarily chose a virginal monastic life, right? And that that virginal element that sort of bodily element is still like a very gendered act or choice of that time. But she does this and in so doing, she makes herself, she like positions herself in a way that she's more able to be heard. It kind of gives her a strange credibility insofar as that like she, in choosing the monastic, she chooses to overcome her womanness, which makes her, I mean, like, I know the subtext there is that it makes her, like, more manly because she's overcoming her womanness, but she is now allowed to channel God directly, and not only that, she is able to experience things with Jesus, right? So, in Reconstructing the Medieval Recluse, a really interesting article, by the way, by Sandy Hubnick, she says, instead of seeking purification by disappearing on the cross, his spiritual pains become her physical pains. And a little bit later, she says, by maintaining her own desire, the recluse can experience both the suffering and the love of Christ, which in turn validate the need for feminine desire to remain active, which is awesome. Not because of the theology, but because in that statement, it's showing that there's a need for the feminine to remain active in order to better understand Christ, right? And I think that that's interesting. Like that's a place where she acts out her subversiveness. So not only is she like being like vocally subversive, I mean, like I think her theology is problematic, but the fact that she's speaking at all, that she has authority in the church is subversive. Um, And so the, and that plus she's also being physically subversive in that she has to remain feminine to understand God better. Yeah, I I also tend to think that, um, yeah, like she does focus on the womb a lot, but she also does this thing. I, I think what makes her still useful in 21st century, I mean, I think she's always going to be historically useful, right? Yeah. Um, and interesting. But I think what makes her theology still relevant to the 21st century is that even though she starts with, or she ends up with kind of like, okay, well, there's Mary with the womb or whatever. The fact that she puts Mary and Jesus on some sort of like gender fluidity 
uh, scale or, or like sliding scale or, uh, or however you want to put it. It's just, it's very interesting to me that they both are in like, we, we, we all as humanity end up beclosed in them, whatever that means. <laughs> right? like, it's, I, I find that very interesting because if someone in the 1300s can get down with the concept of gender fluidity with Jesus and Mary, like that's really interesting to me. And so I think that she still has something to say. Um, and maybe just maybe in her, you know, near death vision, she saw something a little bit more important than my, uh, dancing snails. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just haven't had the 30 years to deconstruct those snails and figure out what that really means. That's right. Later on, I'm going to come up with a banging thesis on that. <laughs> 100% right. I'm excited to hear about those snails. Right? I also think it's pretty subversive that this probably childless woman who feels totally fulfilled living alone comes up with all of this while elevating a woman to deity status. And I think she's super subversive while still being accepted by the church, while being able to incorporate kind of Trinitarian theology, but then be like, but also Mary and look at this kind of gender fluidity thing. Like it's, it is, it is pretty incredible to me what she was able to do. Like, to be honest, like I, I did not, I, we didn't, we didn't cover that aspect of her whenever we talked about her in church theology uh, or in uh, what Christian history was it? Church yeah. history. Um, but when I was reading that, I was like, holy shit, that's really, that is amazing. She's still, she is not done yet in terms of what she has to say in the church for the 21st century. I really don't think so. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, so here's the deal. The Protestants, mm -hmm. they're just generally like not that chill. And um, I mean, I think it would be really fruitful and interesting if they kind of re, oh my God, am I going to do this again? I think I am. Do it. What? We gotta re. We gotta re-examine the canon. We gotta fucking re-examine the canon. Ooh, we're bringing it back to the canon, y'all. Gotta re-examine the canon. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, I didn't know that I thought this strongly about it, but here I am. You know, now that this has come up, I I think Sarah, at some point, we need to talk about like how the Bible became the Bible. You know what? I I agree. I agree. Yeah. And and like. And like, I think that would be good because I would need to defend what I think should be in the canon. Ooh, I want to hear what you think should be. Because I think we all have opinions. I, I do think that we all have opinions on, hey, if we, were, if we were back in the day, what would we have kicked out? But also like, it's not just back in the day. Like, why don't we just do it? Um, no, that, I think that would be really interesting because I think that I, I think if you had to uh really question everybody on it somebody's gonna say that there's one book that got in that are that they're like really really yeah but i think that about so many of the books <laughs> Ooh, maybe there's a book that i like that got in that you don't Ooh, like what i don't know okay so uh, like i don't know because i think i would have to sit down and think about do yeah. i like it and think it should be in the canon or do i just like it Right, exactly. And like the why of, yeah. why should this be in the canon? Anyways. Yeah, we um, 
Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that this was a lot of fun. I think we, we touched on a lot of really cool stuff with Julian Norwich. I think we all, we both probably learned some stuff. I know I did uh, that. I didn't really know about her before and how she, uh, and her historical importance. I think we both agree about her historical importance and maybe disagree about her theological importance. Um, but y'all, you should check her out. She's really interesting and you can read all of her work online. Um, just Google revelation of divine love and read it. It's interesting shit. It's the first book published by a woman in the English language. You should know it. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Will you guys share your favorite episode with a friend we would love it if you guys would give us a shout out on your social media pages um you know we we just we know you love it we want other people to discover it and love it too yeah yeah just just maybe just tip tap a friend and be like hey at friend yeah look at this episode this is this is a blast it is let them know you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and they can contact us at Bible Bitches on Twitter uh, or on our fan page. On Facebook. And, of course, at our Gmail account that we, I promise, check, like, uh, on occasion. Just, you know, it just, just like, DM us on Twitter. Let's be honest. Um, yeah. Also, huge thanks to Engaged Gays for being our host website and at Aaron Doodles for doing our fan art and he's amazing doing our logos and everything like that. And, um, yo Eves for doing our intro and outro music. She's fucking amazing. Go miss Eves. Go miss Eves. She's going to do another European tour. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. He's hitting it and getting it. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah, she is. I'd fucking like love to do like a, project with her any day yeah anyways thank you guys so much for listening we love you Bye. bye well that was a hoot <laughs> a hoot and a half <laughs> that was a hoot and a holler and a half